Yay, yay. We're talking to one of our favorite interviewees, Andre Darlington, who um, I don't know if you have a life at all, Andre, because you turn out these books in such detail. (laughs) We've interviewed Andre before. I've been writing a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you write. (laughs) So, and always interesting. And, I mean, I view you as a multimedia writer, because, I mean, you, you tie in themes like certain uh, decade of, muse, of um, movies or uh, this particular book we're going to be talking about is A Booze and Vinyl Christmas. So tell us about that. <laughs> this one is so fun. So Booze and Vinyl, the original volume, came out in 2018. And then um, we put out another volume of it, volume two, last year, last fall. And, um, you know, they've just been so fun. And both of those are, I think, 70 of the greatest listening albums, quote unquote, um, from multiple different genres, you know, albums that are, you know, kind of watershed albums or just albums that are just great on, on vinyl well-known to critics and, and music lovers. And this one, we decided to do a holiday theme. Um, you know, we had tossed around doing Volume 3, and I thought, oh, let's find something a little fresher than that. And um, actually, one of the editorial assistants said, you know, what about a Christmas, all the Christmas albums? And I thought that was really <laughs> fun because, you know, vinyl people, you know, we talk about warmth and presence in vinyl. You know, that's why the enthusiasts love it. And I think what is warmer and more present than holiday music? So this is sort of, I feel like, really the crux of what makes vinyl so great. Well, Well, I mean, people who are serious about this, they know the pressing of the number that was pressed. They know all this stuff. Yeah, I was, I was yep. actually going to get a word in edgeways a minute ago. But, uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, 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 <laughs> I lost out. Now, we, 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 could re- we could remember that Michael Jackson owns the copyright for Happy Birthday, but, but who owns Jingle Bells? <laughs> right, I don't know who owns Jingle Bells. It might be. I know he owns them. Um, well, I'm glad you brought Bing up because what was fascinating to me you know, I do these deep dives once, once the idea kind of has gestated in the press and I sort of agree on what it's going to look like. I kind of went in this deep dive into holiday music, discovering that it sort of came out of the Depression, but being proved that, you know, sort of pop, you know, holiday music could be, uh, you know, commercially viable with White Christmas, which happened, the song happened to come out a little bit after Pearl Harbor. And, it just was this moment that gelled, right? So the whole country oh, yeah. is sort of in mourning. People are getting called up. We know we're going to war. And White Christmas is playing that holiday. And it went on to become the best-selling single still of all time. He actually, it actually predates the LP. So he put out that really? album on 78. And then it was recompiled. And then when it was recompiled, it became the best-selling LP ever. And it was really interesting to see how it kind of came out of this crooning jazz tradition in, during the Depression and kind of, you know, became an entire genre over, you know, through, basically through the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you know. And now, of course, it's in the malls and the stores, and we get to, you know, people are remaking Oh, yeah, you have to have that. Songs, so. no, yeah. You, no, you, but it's, do, um, do you have in here, I missed it, um, do you have I, my, my all-time favorite I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus. <laughs> oh, of course. I was just looking at and I have a drink called Kissing Claus um, where I give the recommendation. You know, It's actually a minty drink, right? So, I don't know. Um, I've like never had a, it. <laughs> it's a, no, I, I made it up. You know, so all the drinks in the, in the book are um, you know, my original recipes in this book. And I thought, you know, if we're going to do a kissing, you know, Santa Claus, everyone should have minty breath. So I sort of played off a stinger, um, and it's lemon juice and egg white and creme de mint, and it's actually really delicious. I'm not normally somebody who likes to drink creme de mint, but this is a delicious <laughs> recipe. And it feels right around the holidays, right, for the peppermint? Um, but I do yeah, recommend, right. you know, not getting, not getting caught by the children. <laughs> where, where do you find the glasses? You have such a collection of wonderful glassware. 
Yeah, so some of the glass, the glassware is all amazing. We actually have a stylist, uh, Christy Hunter, has worked on all three of the books. In fact, it was really great. Um, you know, when we when we decided to do this volume, uh, you know, the first one we shot, I think, in 2017, um, and it's been a while, you know, but the entire team came back or, or got together again um, to do this book. So same photographer, same stylist, That's um, same great. graphic designer. Yeah, which is why they look, you know, so similar. And I think the production of these books that the press does are just wonderful. You know, they sort of develop these whole worlds and moods in each of the shots. And I just uh -huh. I couldn't imagine it done by other people. Um, I'm sure other people now could you, do it. But it was, it was wonderful having the team back together. Now, you've got a, a really wide range of, of artists uh, much more, much more than you you might expect you could even manage to do about the Christmas. Yeah, season. you know, but, but, I really tell wanted. Our listeners, tell our listeners some some of the ones that you think were rather were rather most fascinating. Well, there are some really fun ones, and part of it was, you know, uh, the Christmas music. I wanted. Uh, different types of music so I could get different types of drinks to pair, right? So I, yeah. I wanted some country. Um, I also found there's a wonderful album called Natty Christmas, which is a reggae Christmas album. Really? So I've got a little huh. tropical Christmas going on. Um, you know, everything in there from, you know, Dolly Parton to Dean Martin and some, and some of those classics. And, and the Nutcracker synonymous with Christmas, yes. the Nutcracker. <laughs> yes, I put in that Simon Rattle Berliner Philharmonic Nutcracker. It's a wonderful, it's wonderful on vinyl. It's super lush. And I basically argue, you know, you can sit at home and have a cocktail listening to it instead of dragging yourself to a Nutcracker production. <laughs> no, no. Is, is, is Tony Bennett in there? I can't, I, I can't recall. There is not, Tony Bennett's not in this one. I do love him. Um, you know, it's always just about the, the, you know, the variety. I had a lot of crooners in there. Um, yeah. You know, we have, we have some state, some Broadway people. Adina Menzel is in there, but, uh, you know, Nora Jones is in there. Um, and then, of course, you know, the Frank Sinatras and the Fitzgeralds and the Dean Martins and the Ar Louis Armstrong. Ella Fitzgerald, yeah, Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah, but also, you know, the wonderful, uh, you know, the wonderful Peanuts uh, album by Vince Guaraldi. Um, you know, I, I really don't know that one. Is that the one that's on TV? That's, exactly, yeah. And it was yeah. actually kind of a water met, watershed album because it was a very hip jazz album for the time that it came out. Uh -huh. um, but I also have, you know, John Denver and the Muppets. <laughs> um, well, you know, going there, through this book, I, I, I could just see you really having a good time. <laughs> you really had it fun with it. It was really fun. It was really funny. What was funny is I think we did it, uh, we did the testing for it, and I did a lot of the listening last spring and summer. Um, so, you know, sort of June, July, and I'm cranking these tunes, you know. But it, it's always fun because some of them I loved and grew up with, and then some were really new to me, you know, um, because I go out and find out what the major albums are and what the critics say and all that stuff. And I kind of go through the entire genre, you know, to kind of pull out um, ones that will make, that are especially good on vinyl, but also ones that will make really good cocktails and a good story. Um, yeah, what about Gene Autry? Who, who remembers oh, Gene so Autry? <laughs> yeah, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That's still another one of those top, those, the um, what do you know? Another what, what, one of those about, top singles of all time. Now, what was Roy Rogers' horse called? Was it Trigger? It was Trigger. Yeah. Yep. There you go. There you go. I remember that. That's really. Remember. There's some scandal associated with that. They stuffed that horse or something. Taxidermy did. I remember something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and there was some kind of there was some kind of scandal involved with it. It's probably so. you know standing next to Mr. Ed somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So I mean, so I guess listeners get this general idea of this book, um, but how is somebody supposed to use it? Um, you have suggestions. How do you organize it? So this one I wanted to organize a little bit. Yeah, I, I want multiple different ways that people can get into the book. 
Um, so it's sort of organized the way the other ones are, and it's sort of a ro sort of rocking Christmas albums that are peppy. Um, you know, that starts out with like Johnny Mathis. I, uh, Johnny Mathis oh, is God, a I wonderful hate Johnny Mathis. <laughs> oh, do you? Well, he's, he's I still remember Johnny Mathis. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember dancing to Johnny Mathis. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's peppy, you know. And then of course the Soul Spectre and, <laughs> and the Beach Boys are in there. Um, and then it's kind of like the, and then I slow it down for like the warm and fuzzy albums. And then I have like a jazzy classical album. You know, those those are wonderful at you know to play at parties or when you're getting ready for something. I love putting on a little jazz. So it's a little bit of a mood um, situation. Uh -huh. And then I kind of just had fun with it. You know, all the books have sort of a when you drop the needle or before you drop the needle. Um, yeah, right. And, you know, this is everything from like a little Christmas, you know, a little Christmas uh, present hunt to, um, you know, all, just all kinds of funny, you know, before you're going out and, you know, making, baking cookies, cookie party and that, and that kind of stuff. And actually, there is some food in this one, which are fun. I decided, you know, nobody needs my take on holiday food. There's whole books on that. But yeah. I did pick out food that is in the songs. Um, so I have figgy pudding and sugar plum Oh, yeah, I saw that figgy and, uh, pudding. Yeah. sugar plums. Yeah, I have some fun stuff that are in songs, um, gingerbread and that kind of, that kind of stuff. Um, just, a, you know, just a few things sprinkled, sprinkled in there. Um, the figgy pudding, turns, turns out, is really, really delicious, um, as, are, as are sugar plums, and they're very easy to make. Um, now, can so you it, buy these kind of, albums now? I mean, are they reprinting them or whatever they do with them? Yeah, a lot of them are reprinted, and you can buy them all. So that's another thing when I go through and kind of decide what the albums are going to be. I make sure that they're commercially available, often just on, you know, Amazon or whatever, but also, you know, at, um, you know, Discogs and, and other, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble. Everybody's selling vinyl now. Um, yeah, and I, I make know. sure that the prices aren't crazy, you know, so they have been reissued and the prices aren't nuts. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm... I told you that I felt a little bit um, sad because I sold all my vinyl before I got good money for it. Uh, and now yeah. I saw this great resurgence of interest in vinyl. But, I mean, it's, it's become so nerdy. I mean, I've never been able to stay up with all that kind of stuff. With the, you know, that and, and then the equipment you need. It's hard to find the, the kinds of stuff to play it on. I mean, the really good quality stuff. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it, expensive. It's gotten better. It, yeah, it's gotten it's better since the first volume, actually, because the companies are coming out with stuff that are less expensive. It always starts with those, you know, the first adopters. Well, they're the people that kept their equi great equipment from back in the day, but then uh -huh. yeah, vinyl had gotten quite expensive. But now there are some good mid-range systems where, you know, you don't have to buy all the components. They, um, you know, they kind of, you know, the amp kind of just works with the turntable and you're done kind of, kind of situation. Um, so it's gotten a little easier. But, yes, vinyl, you know, when I wrote Booze and Vinyl 1 um, in 2018, it was, you know, vinyl was probably 10 bucks, 12 bucks. And now vinyl is 25 <laughs> bucks, 30 bucks. You know, so yeah. things have doubled. It's gotten expensive. Um, but, you know, at the holidays, things go on sale. And um, I think that there's something about collecting the vinyl. You know, even if people don't, you know, have all of this vinyl from this book, you know, a few of their favorite albums are, are just spectacular. Well, and you know, it's, it's one of those hobbies that you can get into and, and it can go on forever because you never get – I mean, there are people who will collect, say, a certain pressing of a Beatles record and a certain, you know, right. whatever it is, and, and you could look forever. So there's – you know, it, it can be an ongoing hobby collectively. Yeah, that's stuff. right. I mean, it's something to do. You know, crate digging is really fun, and people love to do it. They love – they have a list of – you know, albums in their head, and they'll go to, you know, I have friends that go to a city, you know, and they go to all the restaurants and the museums and stuff, but then they also go crate dig at the four or five record stores in that city. Oh, yeah. And so, right. and, which is a great way to see a city because you're finding, like, cool neighborhoods and stuff, too. Uh -huh. um, so it, it's just a fun, yeah, it is a fun ha pastime. You know, I go on days that it's, like, bad weather or, you know, maybe I'm a little blue or something. And I'm like, oh, I'll just get out of the house and go crate dig. 
Um, and it, it, is, it is a really fun pastime. <laughs> now, talk, well, talk, to, talk to us a little bit about, about your liquid concoctions. Because that, that is like half yeah. of the book. Yeah, so this one was really fun. One of the reasons why I was so excited to do a holiday book is because I wanted to do holiday drinks, you know, which is such a good genre. I feel like we drink a lot of drinks around the holidays that you just don't have the rest of the time of the year. I mean, we have, you know, I mean, like eggnog is a great example. You just don't drink it in the U.S. outside of the holidays. Um, But even like the hot toddies and, you know, drinks with chocolate or peppermint or that kind of thing, or lots of cream. Um, so this was a really fun opportunity, and I actually had a blast with it um, because it is such a specific, um, you know, such a specific genre of drinks, and I hadn't really worked with it before. There's not holiday-ish drinks in the other books, but doing a deep dive into it um, is really, really fun. And I so kind what, of lightened up is, a little bit. You know, is, cocktails can get very serious. <laughs> So what, what are some of your favorites in that category? Oh, the, for, the, for the creamy, again, going back to Johnny Mathis, who I know you're not a huge fan of, but the, there's a winter wonderland where I put shredded coconut on the outside of the glass. So it looks like <laughs> snow. Um, it's playful. There's actually a, a couple drinks in here where now they make uh, sort of cocktail sparkles. Um, so you put a few drops of sparkles into your glass. Um, you know, it makes it look like Goldschlager, but it's just the it's just the sprinkles in there. Um, I, I remember you know, when it, that was a thing, just, actually. The I know, right? But it's fun <laughs> for a holiday party. I feel like these things are acceptable at the holidays, right? If you go over to somebody's house and they're having a tree trimming party, and there's gold flakes floating in your drink, you know, it's pretty, it's fun, it's, it's festive. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I went with some some festive ones um, on there, and then you know, there's lots of just great. Um, you know, I don't work with cranberry juice that much. Um, I feel just for, simply because, you know, cocktailers, I feel like we don't need to. They're, everybody knows their cranberry drinks or, or has them or had them, including the Cosmo. But the holidays, <laughs> cranberry out, you know. So yeah. I was working with that, um, you know, figs, dates. Um, there's a wonderful recipe for a raisin syrup. Um, which I was playing with for another book, actually, and then realized that this raisin syrup really makes an incredible old-fashioned. So you get all these kind of, you know, stewed fruit notes just from, just from the raisins. So there's, there's a lot of... What do you do with about. the raisins? What do you do with the raisins? You, ba- you basically make, a, you make a simple syrup. Yeah. I, I yeah, didn't get exactly. you were both talking. Yep. What? Yeah. Oh, sorry, you, I make a, like you a you raisin soak, uh, simple syrup. You soak syrup. them in the booze, right? Look. Yeah. You yep. poach them in the booze, do you? Okay. Um, yeah, you can do that, or I do a, a syrup. I do a, a, like a rose, you know, rosemary is great this time of year. I do a, a toasted cinnamon syrup where you, you basically toast the sticks a little bit and then make the syrup after toasting it. So it just warms uh-huh. it up a little bit. Pecan is in there. Um, so just a lot of those flavors that are great around the holidays in, in baking, too. And I, I played off a lot of that. Well, you, you, I mean, you actually you have a good instinct for flavor, which helps with this stuff. But some of it sounds really wacky. It's, you figure out how it would actually work out to be pretty good. Um, so, right, right. Yeah, I, and people, you know, a lot of people would not even think of trying it. And you, you, you're very brazen about all your ingredients. Uh, correct, correct. <laughs> it was, you know, so, go, go ahead. No, it's, it's okay. Come back, come back to me when you're done with your thought. Oh, I was yeah, just okay. going to say that you know it's, I, it's a long time of you know I did it started out as a restaurant reviewer and then owned a restaurant and and cocktails really are, you know when I teach my classes or whatnot I really try to get people to think that they're kind of cold soups right everything needs to be balanced um, you need to think about the ingredients and how they're going to work together. Um, and, and, you know, and it's at this point, it's just I've been doing it for 20 years, so it's kind of fun. You know, I have these yeah. ideas that I've been working on for a long time, and they kind of come together in these books. Do you do anything with beer? I mean, craft beer is the biggest thing since sliced bread in the, in, in the U.S. just now. But is, is, is there a place for 
specialty beers in your in your world? Absolutely, I love using stouts um, in cocktails, oh, you and you go. can also make a beer a beer syrup. Although I don't have it in this one, there's actually a fair amount of mead in this one, which is a really great cocktail ingredient because mead, um, you know, it's a honey ba- honey based uh, basically. It's so sweet. <laughs> Yeah. It is sweet, but what's wonderful about that is you don't have to add any sugar then, so you kind of use it as this backbone, and it kind of does all these things for you. Um, gives you, you know, gives you the flavor, gives you the honey, and gives you, you know, a little bit of alcohol, um, and you know, so you don't have to put simple syrup in. So it's a fun. And again, mead is another one where I wouldn't be making mead cocktails, but it's the holidays. Subscribe to that. We, right. One of one of the more interesting interviews that, that we did was with the founder, owner, and founder of Dogfish Head. Oh yeah. Out of out of Great Delaware, beer. and 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 a, a lady friend of his who was into wine, and uh, that's what they did. They they compared beer and wine together. Yeah. In, in their, yeah, book, it's in their bo- book and said she 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 will drink wine and he will drink beer or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> and the, and the fu- funny thing, and I want to inject this, because dog, Dogfish Head is brewed and sold in Delaware, Joe. Yeah. Biden's home state. But what, yes. what most people don't what people don't know is that the company was created by two lawyers who decided that they wanted to do something with beer and there were no there were no, there were no laws concerning beer in <laughs> Delaware so, so, so they oh got that's to, interesting they, they, got, they got to write the laws oh <laughs> nice that there's no better than that right <laughs> no, no, not really no Oh, well, so you're always thinking ahead, Nancy, you have this book out, and and I always ask you what you're working on next, because it's always something interesting. What are you working on now? Yeah, actually, I have two books coming out next spring. It just happens that way sometimes on different publishers. Um, They're coming out a couple months apart, but... They're actually both two of my favorite books that I've done yet because they're both kind of a historical dive. One is called Cowboy Cocktails, where I go and find the drinks that were made on the range or use ingredients that would have been available, say, around the gold rush. Or I'm, I'm mostly looking at the cowboy area after the Civil War. Um, and we think that they kind of, you know, they're these roughnecks that just drank whiskey neat. But it turns out that when they made money or they, you know, brought the cows in and made their money or they were gambling and made money, um, they were into all sorts of liquors and spirits. And there was more available out west than we think. So that's a really fun book. And then I'm really excited about, I'm working with Turner Classic Movies again for a book on on pre-code Hollywood, basically from 1929, 1930 to 1934. um, You know, kind of spans the, the end of Prohibition. Um, and that's really fun book. It's 50 of the greatest movies from that era. Um, everything from, you know, King Kong is from that era. It's probably one of the most famous of the pre-codes. Um, and uh, you're going to pair this book. with, what are you going to serve up with King Kong? What kind of what you <laughs> drink? Well, it has bananas in it. I'll give you a hint. <laughs> I should have guessed that. Uh, it's a really, actually, really very fun cocktail. I worked, I worked uh, on that one. I was like, how can I not? I just have to do it. Um, and and um, um, I, I, I also am very pleased with this book. I don't often pun in my titles, but I am doing the original Dracula, which is also a pre-code movie. And I have a Count Drackery. <laughs> oh, that is really bad. <laughs> I may never forgive you that one, Andre. <laughs> I know, right? I'm never coming back on the show. I've been banned. 
something about um, the original Dracula that was in the news, like yesterday or the day before, I can't remember what it was. But something oh, in the it. news, by check it out. I don't know. Google. Yeah. Well, it's such a wonderful. Original they're, they're such wonderful movies. Yeah, they're wonderful movies. So that's fun. It's the idea is pay, you know queue up one of these movies and 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 have a cocktail. It's either in the movie or inspired by the movie, but it's all period. It's all period ingredients. Oh God! Well, you're always a riot, Andre Darlington. <laughs> you, you you always seem to be having a lot of fun. So that's good. I make it. I, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I I can't wait to talk to you again when your book. You not till the spring, I guess. Um, but yes, right. We'll April, talk to you May then. Going to come out. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I love talking to oh, you guys. Oh, yeah. I love uh, I love talking to you too. I mean, I just jump I, I wish you guys. Somebody. Yeah. I know it's. I know it's early, but I wish you the best holidays, and I hope that you can, you know, make maybe make one of the cocktails from the book. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah, you know, we're going to be visiting our son in Philadelphia. I think I'll take the book. Oh, nice. That'll be good. Nice. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, that'll be some good holidays. All right. Here. Yes, indeed. All right. Thank and you, so you much. too. And always enjoy it, and stay in touch as usual. Andre Darlington, Absolutely. the book, listeners, is A Booze and Vinyl Christmas. And it's really, it's a wonderful book. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Andre. Thank you. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Listeners, we're going to be talking uh, to Mark Kurlansky, who we've enjoyed talking to um, many times before. Um, I, I have one rec- recommendation. If you read his current book, The Core of an Onion, read it slowly because there's so much information you want to harbor for the rest of your life in <laughs> it. There are things I've never even thought about, Mark, that you, you write but it's about. A, but it's a, it's a fairly small book, so you can read it slowly and you'll get there. <laughs> well, you know, I'd love to get inside your head. I mean, I think onions are wonderful, but um, did you have any inkling of, of how con- complicated and convoluted uh, the subject is? Yeah, um, you know, the thing that everybody says about a lot of my books is that I, you know, I, I write about these common things. And what people don't understand is that something is com- becomes commonplace because it's unusual, because it uh-huh. has rare qualities that everybody wants. I mean, yeah. So the onion is commonplace. It's all over the world. Everybody has them. But there's nothing ordinary about them. They're really a very unusual plant. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I remember being amazed when some professor or other of mine said that um, the ancient Greeks used to eat onions raw like apples. And before that has stuck with at- me. Before athletic contests. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just and, it's and one of those also, things. Uh, Olympian athletes used to eat raw onions and also rub onion juice on them. Yeah, I saw that. Um, that they must not smell very good either. <laughs> I mean, no, no, no wonder they won. I mean, you got to wrestle this guy who's covered with onions. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, it's it's just it, it, there's so many divergent opinions on the history and stuff. I mean, finding the way you did, uh, like remnants of onions in, um, in where? I mean, in ancient cultures, in, 
in, buried in, in in Pompeii. I mean, it just goes back forever, and you'll never know exactly when it started, right? No, that's right. Um, the, I mean, there are wild onions around, but the wild ancestor of the onion we know doesn't exist anymore. So we don't know exactly where it came from or exactly what it was like. I think it's Which in my front for, garden. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's you know, in my it's, front it's, garden, and I can tell from the smell of it. <laughs> and I can't get rid of it. We don't, we, we don't know. We don't know. Were they smelly or was the smell something that was cultivated? I mean, what, uh-huh. what, you know, it, it's like, you know, we can understand dogs because we can examine wolves. Uh-huh. Um, they you don't know where we, to turn we, we for. Don't, we don't. We don't really know what the onion was in nature and what are the characteristics that were bred into it by humans. It's actually probably the first human-designed food. Yeah, that I thought was interesting because people um, figured out how to customize them early on in in, the, in growing them, right? Uh, to to some degree, but but hybrids where you, where you cross breeds to come up with most of the onions we have now are hybrids of different right. uh, onions that were crossbred. That uh, really didn't come about till the twentieth century because mm-hmm. um, because onions can pollinate themselves. Uh, most onions have both female and male in them. One of the many odd things about onions. Right? Yeah, well, then uh, a lot of a so lot of things sense. are like that. They're finding a lot of under under the sea um, creatures do that too. You know? Well, the thing is that if you wanna if you wanna create hybrid, you you take uh, you know you take the, the the male of a species you want to introduce to the other species to the female part of the other species. But if the female, if the other species already has its own male, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So they they had to find um, really uh, um, obscure things, o- o- onions that were uh, that weren't right, you know. I still remember my mother was a big time gardener. And she used to um, um, take a, a paintbrush and um, and move pollen around on the zucchini blossoms so that we could harvest the males for cooking, and and we wouldn't disturb the females for bringing the zucchini. What a what a beastly thing to do to males. Huh? Well, the, you know that's. Of course, that's a zucchini. It gets much tougher what they got to do with onions. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Now, when, when did, did people they, start? They do this with tweezers. Uh huh. When, when did men start doing that? When did when did they when, they, when were they clever enough that they realized there was this was something they could not, do? Not till the twentieth century. Oh yeah. wow. Okay. No, well, the earliest, very the very earliest. Um, evidence you have of of onions of any variety we don't know what it is right i'm sorry you you only can trace the origins of onions that have been cultivated is that the truth that's right that's right there are wild onions but the wild onions are a different species or like ramps are not onions uh related but no um, okay, and these things in my front garden with the yellow flowers, they smell of onions, but you, you say that they may not, ancient onions may not have had any smell like that. Oh, uh, well, we don't know. But, um, <laughs> okay, uh, this is onions. why I you know, said I'd like flowers. to get... Onions are a flowering... Onions are a flowering plant. And they're nice flowers, and some people grow them in their gardens just for the flowers. Um, you said that in the book. But, but the thing is that the flowers are, uh, like a lot of plants, you know, the flowers are fed 
by, uh, by the plant. In the case of onions, it's the bulbs that provide the nutrition for the flowers. So once the onions start flowering, the bulbs aren't very good to eat. Right. So well, they, the same thing happens eat. with daylilies, you know, because people eat the bulbs from daylilies, but if you eat the bulbs, you don't get the flowers. Right. Right. You, you, you have to make the choice. I mean, nature's choice is to do the flowers. But tell um, me this. What made you settle on the onion as your subject? You say you already knew some of these quirky facts about onions and undoubtedly some of the history. But why choose the onion over anything else? Not just because it was ordinary, but there must have been well, some other Well, uh, for a few reasons. One is that it's probably, you know, the most universal crop. Because it grows anywhere. It'll grow in the Arctic. It'll grow in the tropics. It grows everywhere. So it's this universal uh, yeah, crop. that surprised me, by the way, because it doesn't seem to be dependent on any kind of terroir or climate or anything, right? No, although, I mean, it's it's different depending on the terroir. You know, in different climates, the onions, uh, you know, Indian onions are very strong tasting because they're grown in a hot climate and so on. But, uh, you know, the other thing that intrigued me about onions is, you know, it's the only plant that defends itself against mammals by spitting at them in the eye with sulfuric acid. I think <laughs> yeah, that's pretty that. extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, is so there any other... Gar- if you have a garden, do, do you have a garden? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you may have little rabbits and things feeding on your vegetables, right? But they won't eat your onions. No, they the don't eat it. They out. like my parsley, though. <laughs> right, because the parsley has no defense. Right. So is that the only plant? I just read an article about how plants actually communicate with each other. And they have, um, they have ways of communicating danger, not just to other plants of the same species, but also to a whole variety of plants. And not just the ones that are located near them, but over broad areas. They can communicate danger. They can communicate really? bugs. Yeah. I, I, I don't know much about that. Yeah, bugs. They can they can warn about bugs. Yeah. Onions are onions are prey to a lot of bugs. Aren't they really? Yeah, I mean, onions, onions do better against mammals than they do against bugs. Ah, huh. So what what insect eats onions? Oh. Things with funny names. I can't think of offhand. Not like, you know, your standard insect, but they're they're you know, onion-eating insects. Yeah, because I mean, uh, I, I've never it, had it, any it, problems it, with them. I mean, and, and I, there's I, also. I mean, other vegetables. Oh, you, you, you haven't had any problem with uh, insects or with um, viruses? Cause they also attract viruses. Oh, viruses. That might be a problem. Right. Um, well, interesting. So, so you think that you chose onions because they're the only ones that have that defense against mammals. Uh, yeah, that's, that, that and as I say, just the, the commonality of them. Because you, you take this food, this plant, that everybody grows and everybody eats, and then you start appreciating what is similar and what is different in different cultures. So right. I have a hundred recipes from over the centuries, historic recipes from over the centuries from all over the world. And you see, you know, the same old onion being used in a lot of ways. You have, you have things in your book that, I mean... I, I really read, when I say read slowly, I mean, there are things that you prop up or that pop up in your book that I never even thought about. Um, and, and what was the one I was just thinking about that was so strange? Um, oh, no, I can't even think of what I was about to say. But it was something you never would expect. Um, it was a 
property of, of an onion. I mean, there's so many odd things about onions, and yes. even though they're so common. Uh, that I mean, they, they, they really, they, they just aren't like other plants. I mean, there's, there's other edible bulbs, you know, daffodils and hyacinths. Yeah, and lots of um, but uh, they're they're actually not as good, and you know, from a gastronomic point of view, and uh, you know, also most of those varieties have uh, poisonous variations. Mm-hmm. So you have oh, to know what you're doing when you harvest them. Whereas all onions are safe. They they're not. No, they are. Yeah. Onions are safe, but you you know when you start getting into other bulbs, they have poisonous uh, variations. Oh right, yeah. Right. There's a not there's the a, not, a, not to mention mushrooms. <laughs> I have, well, that's kind I, of what it's like. That, that's what it's like. You know, you have to know what you're doing. You go pick them, but yeah, not onions, I, other things. You know, like there's a there's a plant called a kama that Native Americans ate in in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, explorers learned to eat them, but some kama will kill you, so you have to really uh, you got to take a Native American with you when you go kama picking. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I listened to a lecture from a, a master forager about mushrooms once, and when we lived in D.C. and as, as she had done this for years and was an expert in every regard, and she ended up getting poisoned by one mistake. You know, so seriously ill, or? or? Hmm? She got she seriously, seriously Ill. Ill. Yeah, seriously yeah. ill. So, and, and then our ancestors, I remember my grandmother uh, would say, what you do is you put a silver coin in uh, water with the um, the mushroom, and if it turns black, you know it's poisonous. <laughs> I wonder how many people died before they figured out that was wrong. <laughs> is, is, is your family from Central Europe? No, from Sicily. Oh, from Sicily. Oh, okay. Because mm-hmm. that sounded like a Central European thing. It does. It doesn't. But, it's not. <laughs> well, everything's in Sicily. It's a corridor country, so. You, uh, yeah, that's true. And, and, and uh, funny thing to learn about was how uh, Sicilians, particularly in Palermo, they love yeah. eating raw onions. So, as you know, Sicily was Arab controlled for a long time. Right. And the Arabs thought that the Sicilians were completely backwards. And the reason yeah. for thinking this was that they ate raw onions. <laughs> This is northern Italians. I went to school in Florence, and northern Italians think the Sicilians are not even Italian. (laughs) Well, Sicilians sometimes think that, too, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. You know, uh, I I had never read that um, Apicius, that uh, he probably didn't write that cookbook at all. Well, I mean, how did you find that it out? Came out a, it came out after he died. You know, somebody uh-huh. could have collected his work, or somebody else could have done it, or a bunch of people could have put it together. But but a, a, a how did you a, find he, out? See, I want to know how your mind works, how you find out all these obscure details when nobody else, people write about this all the time, Apicius. And that you found yeah, well, Apicius was a... Apicius was a kind of a sad character. He he had an he killed himself. He killed himself when his inheritance ran out because, you know, his his cooking was all about exotic foods, putting together exotic, expensive foods. And when the budget was gone, he killed himself. Yeah. <laughs> Not really a role model for chefs, you know. No, 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 no. <laughs> now, um, what did you find out? that you weren't expecting to find out or that you hadn't already known about when you were doing the research. And I also want to know how long it takes you to research one of these books. It's so intense and expansive. Well, it's it's usually like a couple of years. Um, I do all the research before I start writing. Uh Uh-huh. 
So it's like when I actually start writing the book, I feel like I'm in the home stretch. I see. But, but what what did you find out that you didn't know before? Oh, well, lots of things like what I just said about people in Palermo, the Arabs thought they were backwards because they ate raw onions. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know the Greek athletes um, rubbed themselves with onions. And um, uh, I never knew that either until I read it in book. No, the, the English. And then there was Cuthbert, the the, the hermit who. Uh, sealed himself in a cave for a week to contemplate. And the only food he, the only food he brought with him was onions, and he didn't eat uh-huh. them. When he came out of the cave, he only had one onion that was sort of nibbled up. Oh, that's right. I read that in your book. Yeah, right. And then there are all these weird these these guys that uh, was it Texas A and M or uh, one of the Texas universities did all this research on obscure onion laws. Apparently, a lot of towns have onion laws that are forgotten and never enforced. It, that interested me, too. I, I never knew that existed. Tell us, tell our, things, our listeners about that. Oh, weird things like, you know, you can't eat onions within a certain amount of time before going in a movie theater. A lot of things against women. Um, uh-huh. Uh, you, you gotta women in shorts can't wear can't eat raw onions and <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of very strange things but I called some of these towns and they'd never heard of any of these regulations uh-huh. so they're buried there there's no record of anybody ever enforcing them but you know that's the way town regulations go you get one guy who's obsessed about something odd and he goes, mm-hmm. goes and he puts it on the books and it's you know so there and everybody just forgets about it <laughs> It's kind of amazing that so many people and cultures attribute all these medical cures and whatnot to onions. Why is that? Because they're odd? Well, that's not surprising to me because, you know, onions are such a... they're such a character, you know. <laughs> they're, 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 they're so unusual in their characteristics and their strong smell and their flavor and they hurt your eyes and, you know, all these strange things about onions. So it's not surprising that people start thinking about them as, you know, medical cures and, of course, inevitably decide that they're aphrodisiacs. Yeah, well, everything is ultimately an aphrodisiac. I mean, I remember doing all that research on cacao. <laughs> Forget it. Everything's yeah, an aphrodisiac. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that uh, uh, onions were found in the lava beds of Pompeii. Yeah. And where they were found is where the brothel was. That's uh, right. I knew there was another detail to that. Right. That's good. <laughs> oh, so... No. But, but a lot of the, you know, I, I have to say that a, a lot of the medical things that have over the centuries been attributed to onions really aren't true. Right. Uh-huh. Well, they're not, no. Um, but I mean, but I why mean, do people, a, the question is, why do people think that? That's the issue, I think. Well... All you have to do is listen to a political debate in this country and <laughs> be asking yourself, why do people think the things they do? <laughs> exactly. Um, so now you also explain in this book, I mean, not just the history and stuff like that, but when you get into the cultivation, just from a culinary perspective, now I understand that what the, the difference is in some of these. I mean, there are cultivated differences, like with Bermuda onions, and you know, and, and the different sweetness and stingingness yeah. and oh, all that onions, stuff. That Bermuda onions was a story I found really interesting that I hadn't known about. Yeah, tell oh. us about, tell our listeners about that. Well, the British have never grown a lot of onions. They eat a lot of onions, but 
they don't want to waste their land on it. You know, sort of colonialist thinking. <laughs> so yeah. they try to grow onions in other places, and they started growing them in Bermuda. And Bermuda had this low sulfur kind of environment where they could grow these really sweet onions. It became mm-hmm. very popular. Um, and then during World War One, they weren't able to, to do much trade out of Bermuda. And then afterwards, uh, basically people in Texas decided they wanted them. <laughs> and so the U.S. put tariffs on, on Bermuda so that uh, Texas could grow Bermuda onions and, and sell them at a better price than the real Bermuda onions. And so today, <laughs> most Bermuda onions are from Texas, and there's hardly any Bermuda onions in Bermuda. Really? How funny. And there, and there, are, no, there are no Bermuda onions in England, in the mainland, if you like, as well. <laughs> but the- no, uh, British are very, they're very funny about onions. They always try to get them from other places and for you know for years that uh these guys would bring them over from Brittany on bicycles <laughs> oh yeah yeah well you yeah you, you had a, you had a like what would you call it it's like a garland of, 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 of oh yeah around your neck and the, the French yeah. used to go from from one from one house to the next to the next to the next yeah, all over, you know, all the way up to Scotland. And they used to ride, they used to ride bicycles. Right. And, and it, it had this impact on British culture that for a long time, in a lot of people's minds, a lot of British people's minds, the idea of a Frenchman was a guy in a striped shirt with a beret on a bicycle. Because that's what the <laughs> onion guys looked like. And a, and a garland of onions. Right. <laughs> Well, now, here's, here's, the, here's the real deal. When, when, when I visit my brother, he knows I love pickled onions. So oh, he yeah. buys the largest possible jar of the largest possible pickled onion. <laughs> and, 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 and we'll go through more than one bottle <laughs> during the period are of... You saying large, are you saying they're large onions? They're yeah, onions. they're brown onions. They're, yeah, they're, I mean, that's one of those odd British... This yeah, one? That's one of those odd British things. Only the British pickle large onions. Everybody else pickles little onions. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we never could actually find them. You know, we often bought uh, British things that you get at Peter's British, but um, in, the, in the States or whatever, or wherever else we were living. But no, there's no brown pickled onion like what you get in, in England, particularly in the north of England. So that's when my right. brother goes it's, to work and brings the, brings the right, right kind of pickled onions. It's, it's an <laughs> authentically if you're really, local thing. If you're Mainly because really nobody else, <laughs> nobody if, else if ever really wanted devoted, them, you, know? <laughs> you, you go to the chippy, you go to the fish and chip shop on right. the corner of your street, and there on the counter will be a jar of the most humongously sized brown <laughs> pickled onion, and and you and you pick the however many you want out of the jar that's on the counter. Right. Yeah. Right. And then there's the 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 plowman's lunch. Oh yeah. It's actually a purely <laughs> modern thing. There, there was, like there's a, a total face. It, it, it's not all, It's not uh, ancient at all. It's modern. The plowman's no, lunch. It, it's yeah. uh, 20th century, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was actually, the story was actually told to us by Michelin umpteen star restaurant, restaurateur and chef in the south of England called, what's his, what's his name? I don't know. <laughs> I've forgotten. Heston Blumenthal. Oh, Heston, yeah. And Heston, Heston told us the story of how oh I know her yeah. Plowman's lunch came about. Yeah. Now, um, what about this second part? I mean, we've talked about the history and peculiar peculiarities of onions. What is it you have in your second part of the book, where you have, you know, like eggs, puddings, custards, and cakes, and um, fried recipe kind of stuff, pickles, onion yeah. bread. 
I just well, thought yeah, we should I mention mean, it's, that. It's, it's, yeah, it shows, and you know, a lot of a lot of food history is hard to figure out. I I couldn't really figure out what the connection was between Jews and onion bread. Yeah. I mean, I'm Jewish. I grew up with onion bread in all kinds of different forms. But you look all over the world, and, you know, Italian Jews make onion focaccia. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, Sicilian pizza, which is called uh, pizza alta, which means it's high. It's not thin, you know. It's thick. Uh, the, there's no tomato involved with it at all. Uh, what they do really? is they have the dough. And then uh, you take um, anchovies and onions, and you sort of poke them into the um, into the uh, dough, and then bake it. That's well, pizza that's kind of alta. Like the, that's kind of like the Niçois Pissadliera. That doesn't have any tomatoes either, and no. it has anchovies. But it, um, and do they poke them into the? I mean, I still remember seeing the the they, ladies. Doing that. They 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 puree the anchovies and they rub it on the crusts before they bake it. Oh, see, this in, in my family, they just took the whole fillet of anchovy and poked it into the dough. Huh? But it was yeah. great. Well, of course it was great. <laughs> I wish yeah, I had some you now. You know, you know what's one of the things I really worked hard at trying to figure out and I couldn't figure out. How did this whole thing come about about a Gibson? Why would anybody put an onion in their martini? Right. How did that happen? (laughs) Well, I'm not really sure. I found numerous stories. I don't know if any of them are correct. It seems to have a San Francisco origin. Martinis. It was a man's man's name. Um, There are, yes. It was a guy who started the trend. Yes, there were several people named Gibson who claimed that, or whose whose descendants yes, yes. claimed that, and it's not really clear which Gibson it is. Um, and there's also stories about why they would do this. Um, right. question. It's a pretty odd a, thing to do. I had a lot of that with Gibson's phones for several years. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, I. You know, it's like, ooh, there's an onion in my martini. Well, it's not a martini, it's a Gibson. Well, you know, I, I have just a couple of questions to, to wrap this up. And the first one is, what mystery, and there are a number of them, um, are you still interested in, in resolving that you weren't able to, with all your research, to resolve? And uh, that's... The number one, and and also, um, I'm sorry. Can what, you say that again? Yeah, there. What mystery? Because you have a lot of mysteries running through this book, and what one really bothers you enough that you want to continue researching to solve it? That's so important. Well, it's those two, the real origin of Gibson, because there's too many stories about it. And uh-uh. and I, I really want to know, you know, through rye bread to Bialis to bagels to focaccio, what is the connection of um, onion bread to Jews? That might be your next book. <laughs> I, I, had, I had talked to Mimi Sheridan about this, who had written a book about Bialis. She didn't know either. Right. Yeah, that's right. She did do that. Um, so uh, Mimi's still going, is she? No, I'm afraid not. No, she died recently. No, I, I just read. I was surprised because I don't remember reading that she had died, and I just read something in past tense about her, and I was wondering. She well, was one a, feisty a, lady, huh? It's uh, She's one of the dedications in my book. Yeah, she's she was... Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. You know, I did some panels just, with her. She was just a true food person. She just oh yeah was fascinated no with everything about food. Yes, and and no no compromises. They're all and and tell right up front as it is. You know, even if she was going to offend somebody, she didn't care. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, she was just amazing. Well, and she always had this phrase I used to uh, laugh about when she was a, a restaurant critic for the New York Times. If, yeah. if she wanted to say something was good, she'd say it's as it should be. well anyhow um i'll I'll save my other question because i already forgot what it was (laughs) until our next talk um again listeners this is a a fascinating book i mean all of mark kurlinski's books are fascinating Uh, but this one's called the core of an onion and honestly I, i i don't know we could call it a page turner because I want you to read it slowly and absorb this wealth of information could, that's or, in here. Or you could call it a tearjerker. Yeah, it could be a tearjerker. That's true. That's very clever. <laughs> All right, Mark Kalinsky, thank you very much for talking to us. And I can't thank wait you. for your next book. <laughs> thank you very much. It's nice talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.